The throw in your two cents worth is to speak your opinion, share your beliefs or point of view on a matter. They say if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. The Two Cents cast by students of Campwell Girls Grammar School invites a range of perspectives, experiences and expertise on all sorts of issues and topics that matter to us and the world. The Two Cents cast is hosted by our school leaders and created by our community, for our community and beyond. We hope you enjoy our Two Cents worth. Welcome back to all of our listeners of today's episode of the Two Cents Podcast. My name is Felicia and I'm joined by... Gloria and Lauren. And we will be your hosts. Welcome back everyone to the Two Cents Podcast. So we are very fortunate to go to a school that not only empowers women, but encourages us to seize every opportunity. However, the female experience in the outside world may be a little bit different. So today we're joined by a very special guest to discuss all about empowering women and women in the workforce. So welcome to Dr. Asika Palenda, who is here with us today. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm tuning in from today, the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I recognise that Treaties have not been signed and Aboriginal sovereignty has never been ceded. We might jump in with this first question of that. There's many of us who are unsure of what kind of career pathway we should take. And so, Asika, how did you discover what you were passionate about? And did your passion for dance perhaps influence this decision at all? Or could you even speak a bit more about this? Mm, Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, So I'm currently working as a junior doctor and I'm a paediatric trainee, which means I get to work with babies and children all day. It's so amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's a wonderful job. Uh, And I... I'm also passionate about public and global health. So I'll I'll kind of speak to a little bit about how I came to that position. I think I am Mm -hmm. a bit of an anomaly in the sense that I knew (laughs) for quite some time what I wanted to do. But my uh, my interest and my pathway has definitely diverged from what I expected. I discovered what Mm. I was passionate about essentially through lived experiences. So... I'm a first-generation immigrant. My parents moved to Melbourne from Sri Lanka when I was less than a year old. And uh, we we did get to go back to Sri Lanka, I think, when I was about four or six years old. And and since then, we've been back every two or three years. And growing up, I would see quite a stark contrast in health outcomes and wealth between my life Mm -hmm. here in Melbourne and that of my extended family in Sri Lanka. And I have quite vivid this actually this very particular vivid memory of being in (laughs) Sri Lanka when I was about 12 years old and I remember being quite overwhelmed by the poverty in Sri Lanka every time I visited as well so we're at this temple and flanking either side of the temple lead the pathway sorry flanking either side of that pathway leading up to the temple there were a lot of homeless people stretching out their hand Mm -hmm. with the hope of a coin dropping into it. And I remember looking up at my dad and I asked for some coins and he he gave half of his stash of coins to my sister and the other half to me. And we went up (laughs) either side of the road giving coins to these people. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing a boy and 
he was probably around the same age as me. And as he reached out his hand to me, our eyes met. And I didn't know what it was called at the time, but in that moment I recognised privilege. And I saw how essentially where we are born, what family we're born into, the resources Mm. that are accessible to us are determinants of our outcomes in life. And I, I didn't know what that was at the time, but I would come to know in first year of medicine that there is a whole study surrounding this called global health. And that would be something that I became really passionate about and delved into. Mm. Yeah, and the study of global health, actually, we I went on to learn about how important sustainable models of healthcare are and, you know, giving coins in one instant isn't so sustainable, but it was kind of this defining point of where I learnt about uh, inequities, essentially. Um, and to kind of speak to, about, uh, speak to you about dancing as well, so I started dancing at a very young age. I was about seven years old, <laughs> and I started in a traditional Sri Lankan form of dancing called Kandyan dancing, and then moved into Indian classical styles, ventured into Bollywood and got to dance around Australia. <laughs> it, was, it was quite amazing. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and That's I've come amazing. back into Sri Lankan dance at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and um, I think what started initially as a hobby definitely turned into a passion and I found myself teaching children when I was just a teenager and there was something so incredible about teaching children they have this curiosity and this spark for life (laughs) that I knew I didn't want to lose touch of and I felt like working with children for the rest of my life would be a good way to (laughs) keep in touch with it (laughs) so definitely um, one way (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) yeah so I um remember when we had dial-up internet for the first time, which is probably nothing that you have experienced, (laughs) Um, going down this rabbit hole on Google looking at career pathways and I just came across the word paediatrician and I was like, oh, wow, I, I love working with kids. I'm really interested in human biology. I feel like this might be it and I kept that back in the back of my mind um, going through high school Mm -hmm. and ended up in that career pathway but as I mentioned earlier I think I am that anomaly and a lot of people don't actually Mm -hmm. know what they want to do and a lot of my friends didn't know that going through high school and even entering university what they wanted to do and I think it's so important to realize that career pathways are dynamic you are filled with so many resources in the ability to go into a particular field and then want to change and that's completely fine you have access to things that will help you make that change and find what you are most passionate about and I think it's important not to be afraid about changing careers I think that we're moving into that space actually where a lot of us won't be in a particular career pathway for the rest of our lives we'll be chopping and changing anyway and it's Mm. important to be open-minded about opportunities that come your your way it's so nice that you've drawn on your experiences um that you've seen in life and then kind of shifting that into some sort of career pathway that you want because it kind of makes sure that you're always passionate about what you do every single day rather than doing a nine-to-five job that you know you're just doing it for the sake of doing it so that's that's really good advice Mm -hmm. especially for us going into university (laughs) next year so definitely take that one on board (laughs) 
I'm glad mm-hmm. to hear. <laughs> um, so the feminist movement, it has now been globally recognised. However, it's not always been the case, unfortunately. So how mm. have you personally seen the feminist movement change over the years? Mm, this is a really great question. Um, I actually think that the feminim- feminist movement has been globally recognised since the first wave of feminism, but the patriarchy itself has done a really good job of erasing women from history to further disempower us and ensure structures and systems that benefit and give power to the most privileged continue to exist. So uh, I actually would consider myself a closet feminist during my high school days (laughs) Um, because historically feminists were seen more as extremists in a way. The image that I grew up with were women burning their bras and I actually could not really identify myself within that space. (laughs) And it was only later that I learnt how important and relevant that particular movement was. And if it wasn't for our sisters burning their bras, we would not have the rights and the freedoms Mm -hmm. we have now. And in my teens and early 20s, it wasn't the norm to be a feminist. However, I feel like now it's more socially accepted and almost expected in a way. But Mm. that's also very dependent on your social circles. (laughs) And I know I'm a culprit of living in my own social bubble with like-minded people and then having this wake-up call and being like, no, there are many people out there who are not part of the same movement that I am. (laughs) So um, I think that feminist ideals and the way it has been received has certainly developed and changed over time and it's been absolutely necessary. Women have only been allowed to vote in Australia from about 120 years ago or so, but Aboriginal people have only been allowed to vote for just 50 years. I'm going to let that one sink in. That's Aboriginal people have only been allowed to vote for just over 50 years. So I, I think that's why intersectional feminism is so important and I'm glad that the latest iteration of femin- of this feminist movement is mm-hmm. attempting to be more encompassing and inclusive, albeit with a constant reminder and contribution from marginalised yeah. groups. And I think, I hope that answers your question in a sense that even <laughs> over my short experience um, with feminism there's been so much change um, and I think it's a really exciting time to be a part of it definitely yeah I'd add on to that as well with like we always mention this in a lot of our podcasts but the idea of um, social media kind of making that skyrocket and kind of really contributed to um, the feminist movement which is really good to see and also, on to our next question, have you encountered any challenges purely just because you are a woman, especially being in a traditionally male-dominated domina- industry? Mm. Um, and what did you mm. feel when you were confronted by this and how did you overcome it? <laughs> yeah, um, I could talk so much about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I guess, first of all, I have to say it's always difficult to say if I've experienced something purely because I'm a woman, because I'm also a woman of colour. And I don't know if it's my womanhood or my brownness or both that has managed to offend someone in some way or another, (laughs) you know. But um, I have certainly experienced sexism and 
and even or racism as a medical student and a doctor, mainly in the form of microaggressions and surprisingly mainly from patients. Uh, I find these kinds of instances really challenging because I'm still quite junior working within a very much hierarchical system of medicine. (laughs) And I don't know if my words or my reactions will essentially jeopardise my career or my relationship with my seniors and also, importantly, my relationship with my patients. Going through medical school and this journey in medicine, um, a patient is someone who is in their most vulnerable state. Uh, And it's quite a privilege to be trusted with someone's health in that sense. Mm. And we would never accept verbal or physical violence or abuse from a patient. And it's important to realise that we should also never accept words that make us feel uncomfortable or demean us in any way either. Mm. So if I could talk to you about a few experiences, actually. In mm-hmm. medical school, I was sitting in this outpatient clinic with a male mm-hmm. senior doctor. He, they're called consultants when you're a senior and you're the big mm-hmm. boss, you're known as a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when uh, we had this older white male patient who, after I was introduced, decided to say, oh, she's pretty, you remind me of my wife who is Filipino. I was so incredibly uncomfortable. Like, I think I was just more Mm. shocked into silence than anything. Um, And the senior doctor was actually excellent. He was so prompt in putting out his hand, kind of just saying, okay, that's enough, that's not appropriate. Mm. And I felt instantly relieved that someone was in my corner. And that, to me, was just such an excellent example of allyship that um, especially when you are in more senior positions, recognising how you can support your junior staff is important. And one day we'll all be there <laughs> eventually, <laughs> even though we can't imagine it, we'll all be in those senior <laughs> positions. And I think it's really important for us to remember what it's like being junior and supporting our juniors through mm. their careers. Uh, and mm. one other thing that I really wanted to talk to you about is that As a female doctor in particular, you constantly get referred to as being a nurse (laughs) or a lady or a lady doctor. You can't see my air quotes, but that's what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) After introducing my... And that's even after introducing myself as the doctor. And um, Mm. I remember this one instance very vividly that I'd spoken to these new parents, I'd introduced myself to them as their baby's doctor, and I returned the following day with a male medical student and they referred to me as a nurse and the male medical student as the doctor and I I actually can't tell you the amount of times I've had to say oh I'm actually your doctor or I'm your child's doctor and I think it's just uh, it's just kind of the norm for a lot of female Mm. doctors and I think one of the important things is realizing that This fight is lifelong and that you need patience to endure Mm -hmm. all these encounters and it's important to remind yourself to keep that patience so that you can stay grounded and also (laughs) well-fueled throughout your lifetime. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, in, in all honesty, I don't think that 
I was at the stage to be able to confront these experiences until recently. Mm. And I'm still in that learning process of how best to handle these situations. Yeah. Uh, and what you've mentioned before as well, I think these social media movements like the Me Too movement and now the recent global recognition of the Black Lives Matter movement have certainly yeah. helped people find their voices and their confidence in addressing these issues because they're now in the mainstream discourse. So I think mm-hmm. moving forward, that thanks to these movements in particular, there are safer places mm-hmm. for these discussions. And people you couldn't even reach out to to just know that there are others that are thinking like or having similar thoughts to you on and viewpoints on these kinds of issues, which are yeah. super important. Absolutely agree. I think um, it's really helped with that human connection and empathy mm. as well. I think that's one yeah. of the beautiful things about these movements. <laughs> Um, So just in our short talk that we've had already, we've heard a lot about your experiences, but we know that you've accomplished so much more on top of that. Um, Could you briefly discuss with us about the Waterwell Project and its aim? So um, the Waterwell Project, the aim of it is to improve health literacy within migrant and refugee populations. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I'm really uh, passionate about. I came across this, the Waterwell Project, after I worked with the founder, um, Linny Fong, who is an incredible woman, a force to be reckoned with herself, mm-hmm. and um, who I worked with on the Infectious Diseases Unit at the Royal Children's Hospital. And I was so inspired by her. I, want, I just went up to her and I was like, can you please be my mentor? <laughs> and I think that's also such an important thing when you're young to find people that you connect with and ask them to be your mentors because they have a wealth of knowledge and experience to pass down to you. So I, I joined the Waterwell Project after working professionally with Linny and basically um, we have community groups that reach out to the Waterwell Project about particular topics. We cover the Australian healthcare system, men's health, women's health, childhood health and development, um, dental health. There's a a few different topics that we do. And now we're actually running a series on COVID um, as well, via Zoom, of course. (laughs) um, That's everything these days. Right. (laughs) Exactly. It's now the new norm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So... Yeah, we, we uh, different community organisations reach out to us about what topics they'd like us to cover. And it's, it's not specialised medical advice, it's generalised advice uh, for um, these community groups. So, and it's also usually done with an interpreter because we know that even though a lot of um, refugee and migrant groups have mm. an understanding and can, can communicate in English, Things are just different and better communicated in a language that's more familiar to them, especially in Mm -hmm. a country that is so foreign to them. Uh, So I think it's um, an amazing project that really um, is is doing some groundbreaking and changing, really changing work for um, communities within Victoria and has now expanded to New South Wales and Tasmania. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the other organisation that I'm involved with is called Possible Dreams International and it works in the Kingdom of Eswatini, which is formerly known as Swaziland. 
And I first joined this organisation as a part of their diversity workshop, where we attend schools and provide education on diversity and racism, particularly within Australia. And I later joined as the fundraising coordinator, and now I'm a board member. Very new kind of title there. <laughs> um, it's. I think this is such an amazing organisation as well. It's such a great organisation in the sense that it's it's a good example of something that centres the people of East Swatini. So all the projects and the day-to-day running of the organisation is led by the local community. And we only exist oh. as as a support for fundraising and for grants. So um, we just provide the funds to run these locally-led projects. And mm. this is both emergency relief as well as something called income generation projects, which ensures we have this sustainable model. So we have the Matetsa Soup Kitchen and Garden where every weekday there are 50 meals that are delivered to people living in poverty and the new Amandala Women's Project where women in the community have learnt to sew and they sell their items in local markets and hopefully we'll be able to get these items onto a website soon too. Aww. Yeah, so awesome. yeah, it's, it's incredible and having this interest in public and global health has really led me to see that how important it is to be careful in how we do overseas work because there can be damaging effects from people overseas particularly in the global north uh, and country with those people in the global north going into countries in the global south or low income countries and imparting on them funds and projects that are not sustainable or ideals or a way of life that is not culturally sensitive and it's that that concept of the white saviour complex, but it's also important to note that not all white saviours are white <laughs> um, because we are, we are seeing certain migrant populations who have grown up in Western society going back to those countries mm. almost with that same saviour complex. <laughs> so I think it's within the nature of many of us to want to help, but it's equally important to listen mm. and learn and be mindful of how we act so we don't harm others. I think that's a really important point to raise for all of our listeners, that it is trying to get these different projects that are sustainable so that even communities mm. can learn to thrive within themselves as well. Mm-hmm. Asika, for women in society, what do you hope the future to look like? <laughs> I think um, as, a, as a whole, I guess, everyone as a, who is part of this movement wants gender mm. parity. <laughs> but yeah. um, we know that's the end goal that is probably not what we will see within our lifetimes. <laughs> and um, although we can take steps to try and get closer to that goal. I think within my lifetime, there are a few things that I hope mm. to see. <laughs> um, <laughs> one is more women in leadership. I think that that is mm. so vital uh, for our voices to be heard, for yeah. our thoughts, our abilities, our skill set to be out there. Uh, and I think that we ourselves can do this because we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice in thinking that we cannot go <laughs> for these positions when we absolutely mm. can. I think it's a known fact that when women are applying for a job and they're looking at the skill set that's required, unless 
we have every single thing on that list. We think yeah, that yeah. we are not worthy enough for that job or we can't do that job. Am I right? <laughs> We've heard this. Yeah. 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 And uh, when uh, compared to our male counterparts who will look at it mm-hmm. and be like, oh, yeah, I tick off a few things. I can apply for this job. But why not go for it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's a mindset that more of us need, that mm-hmm. we tick off a few things. Why not? Let's go for it. Um, and I think we've already seen how incredible women can be in leadership. We've got so many female prime ministers and presidents around the world at the moment. And I think that we bring so much to the table. And I'm not saying just in the political landscape I think that across Mm. all facets we we should be striving to be in positions of leadership so I hope that I see that within my lifetime (laughs) the other (laughs) uh, the other thing that um, I guess I hope that we address more of is gender-based violence um, and that we recognize that there is a lot more work to do in that field and that we have a serious problem with it in absolutely every country of the world. (laughs) Um, Mm. And that I think that we need to focus a lot more education, particularly in schools on this Uh, Mm. and particularly in boys' schools. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think recognising that gender-based violence is an effect of a pyramidal structure and addressing every level of that pyramid is the approach that we need for this. And um, I think it comes back to this concept of the importance of investing in the girl child. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that before, Um, but the girl effect did this wonderful video on it a few years ago, which I still look back on. And um, it's, it's that the girl child is at a pivotal moment in in the sense of their education and their health and the the community and the family that they grow up in and if we are focusing more energy into optimizing the health of a girl child we are in turn optimizing health outcomes for women in the future and the communities that they are part of so i think um when we talk about advancing women's health and advancing women's uh, outcomes in general, we need to start at the girl child and work our way from there. Yeah, I think that was really good how, yeah, I totally agree with what you said. It's kind of like starting from the root of the issue as well. Um, As you said, like um, educating the boys about it because they're kind of like the root of it mm. and they're not just taking those steps but continuing that on through all, throughout all the generations so that when we grow up mm. um, we don't have to face any of that hopefully um, mm, exactly <laughs> so finally what piece of advice would you give to your younger self um, so I think something that I would tell my younger self is that there is not a lot of glamour in being busy and working on others' schedules. And it's important <laughs> to slow down and be present and walk your own pathway in your own timeline. <laughs> I think that there is this culture in glamorising a busy lifestyle. It's almost synonymous with hustling. <laughs> that, um, And I know that I was feeding into this in my teens and my early 20s. And in trying to do so... Uh, I just feel like I haven't 
completed some of my projects and my my passions properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's important to realise there's no need to try and achieve some momentous feat by the age of 21 or 25 or 30 <laughs> um, because life goes on well beyond that. And despite what I thought during high school, life doesn't go downhill after 25. <laughs> it actually gets way better. <laughs> so that's what I tell myself. <laughs> That's awesome. Before we wrap it up, I'd just like to share with our listeners this one quote, which touches on a bit of the things that we've spoken about today. So this one's by G.D. Anderson, and it's, feminism isn't about making women stronger. Women are already strong. It's about changing the way the world perceives that strength. And I think that holds a lot of truth. That is so beautiful. Perfect. Um, Thank you so much, Asika, for joining us on the podcast today. It has been such a big privilege to hear from you and it's been so inspiring and admirable the way that you lead every single day of your life and hopefully, fingers crossed, the future that you envision for us happens. Um, But, yeah, once again, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And that's our two cents. So that was our two cents worth. We hope you have the courage, bravery and grace to form your own opinions, ask big questions, invite other perspectives in and always seek ways to be useful in service to the lives and learning of others.